This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is the gift of knowledge through the Holy Ghost and secular learning. In the first half, J.E. Jensen shares his address, The Unspeakable Gift of the Holy Ghost. Then in the second half, John D. Lamb speaks on All Ye Need to Know. The Holy Ghost is sometimes called the Spirit, appropriately called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, and the Comforter. The Holy Ghost has certain missions or responsibilities. I will mention four. Mission one, He testifies of or reveals the Father and the Son. The Holy Ghost truly reveals or testifies of the Father and the Son. I experienced this as a young child. Even though I could not have articulated it then, I grew up believing in God in a wonderful Latter-day Saint home. I was baptized and received the Holy Ghost at age eight. I never questioned the existence of the Father and the Son. Rather, in our family was a full and complete acceptance, a worship and a faith in them, evidenced by regular family prayer, pausing to bless the food at each meal, family night, reading from the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon, church attendance, obedience to the commandments, and all the other things we do as Latter-day Saints. I personally could not turn to the scriptures to teach the doctrine that the principal role of the Holy Ghost is to reveal God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. But as a matter of faith, I certainly understood the principle. During my mission, I began a daily study of the scriptures, my scriptural knowledge, my testimony, and my faith in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, were strengthened by divine doctrine, by spiritual experiences, and by personal revelation. I know of myself that these words from the Savior are true, and the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me. And the Father giveth the Holy Ghost unto the children of men because of me. Mission two, he testifies of all truth. The Holy Ghost reveals the truth of all things. Sincere seekers who read the Book of Mormon and pray and ponder with real intent to know of its truthfulness are promised they will know it is true. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, they may know the truth of all things. Alma invited the poor people cast out by the Zoramites to conduct experiments with words. Specifically, he emphasized to them that true words planted in receptive hearts would begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed or a good word, resulting in three ways they would know the truth. One. It beginneth to enlarge my soul, evidenced in sincere seekers of truth by tears, a sigh, a nod of the head, or some other body gesture that the Holy Ghost had planted true words in their hearts. Two, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, evidenced by comments such as, That makes sense, or I've always believed that, or a question, Are you saying then that? Three, It beginneth to be delicious to me, evidenced, for example, by investigators with comments like, Please tell me more, or where did you say your church is located, 
or won't you stay a little longer and teach us more, meaning they are hungry and want more. The testimony of Brigham Young illustrates these truths. Quote, if all the talent, tact, wisdom, and refinement of the world had been sent to me with the Book of Mormon and had declared in the most exalted of earthly eloquence the truth of it, undertaking to prove it by learning and worldly wisdom, they would have been to me like the smoke which arises only to vanish away. But when I saw a man without eloquence or talents for public speaking who could only say, I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that the Book of Mormon is true. The Joseph Smith is a prophet of the Lord. The Holy Ghost, proceeding from that individual, illuminated my understanding, and light, glory, and immortality were before me. I was encircled by them, filled with them, and I knew for myself that the testimony of that man was true. Mission three, he sanctifies. The word sanctify comes from Latin and has two roots, sanct, meaning holy, and facere, meaning to do or to make, literally meaning to make holy. In our religious use of the word, sanctify simply means to purify or make free from sin, a central message of the restored gospel. Of course, the gospel is God's plan of salvation made possible through the Atonement of Jesus Christ and includes the eternal truths or laws, covenants, and ordinances needed for mankind to enter back into the presence of God. The sanctifying role of the Holy Ghost is relevant in the context of the Savior's definition of His gospel in 3 Nephi 27, 13-20, concluding with this significant verse. Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. The Holy Ghost is the sanctifier, and because of Him and through the infinite atonement, we may stand spotless, clean, and pure. In different callings where I had priesthood keys as a judge in Israel, particularly as a bishop, I witnessed the cleansing, sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. One experience, the elements of which represent others, truly stands out. On a Sunday morning, a young man in his early twenties came to see me, his bishop. During the week, he and his girlfriend had allowed their emotions and passions to exceed the bounds the Lord had established. I listened prayerfully. We read scriptures together along with words of the Latter-day Prophets. I gave him a few reading assignments, placed appropriate restrictions on his Church privileges, set up future appointments, and then knelt with him in prayer. With each subsequent interview, he reported on his reading, especially from the Book of Mormon, and the anguish in his countenance and demeanor was replaced by faith in God and in His Son, by hope and optimism, by firm resolve, and by a change in his heart. Gradually, he grew spiritually. Following the appropriate passage of time and as directed by the Spirit, I lifted the restrictions placed on him and authorized him to partake of the sacrament. As I sat on the stand in sacrament meeting, my eyes were drawn to him when first the bread and then the water reached his roll. I witnessed sanctifying light, peace, and forgiveness. 
The Savior's words to Joseph and Oliver Cowdery following their partaking of the sacrament came into my mind. Behold, your sins are forgiven you. You are clean before me. Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice. Like Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, this young man received a remission of his sins by fire and the Holy Ghost. Not only did this young man experience the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost, so also can you and I experience the same freedom from sin, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. Mission 4, The Teacher With all that can be said about learning and teaching, I summarize it simply by saying that the Holy Ghost is the true teacher. In the eleven verses in Doctrine and Covenants 50, verses 13 through 22, the odd-numbered verses are questions, and the even-numbered verses are the Lord's answers. As I read verse 13 and 14, please note two roles and what each does. Wherefore, I, the Lord, ask you this question, Unto what were ye ordained? To preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. The role of the Holy Ghost is to teach. He is the true teacher. My role is not to cover material or get through the lesson. Rather, as a holder of the priesthood, I am to preach, teach, expound, exhort, warn, and invite by the Spirit. My role is to be an instrument in creating an atmosphere for the Spirit to do what He does in the divine process described in verse 22 of section 50. Wherefore, he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified and rejoice together. Nephi concluded his writings and expressed his inadequacies as well as his correct understanding of the role of the Holy Ghost. And now I, Nephi, cannot write all the things which were taught among my people, neither am I mighty in writing like unto speaking. For when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children of men. Note the preposition unto and not into. Because of our agency, he carries it unto our hearts. If we invite him, he will carry it into our hearts, as is taught in the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I witness to you that he has other important responsibilities or missions. He is the Comforter. He restrains or constrains. He leads, he warns, and he rebukes. I invite you to study them on your own. I will now speak about conditions to receive the Holy Ghost. The conditions or requirements to receive the Holy Ghost are simple. I will only mention three. One, desire, which for me includes ask, seek, and knock. Two, worthiness. And three, alertness, both spiritually and physically. The words desire, ask, seek, and knock are often found in Scripture together, and they are fundamental to receiving the Holy Ghost and His unspeakable gifts. 
Alma taught that God grants unto men according to their desire. I draw your attention to these words in Doctrine and Covenants 11, a revelation of the Lord to Hiram Smith. The word desire and its cognates appear eight times. Perhaps one of the most well-known and off-sided is in verses 21. It brings together seek, desire, the word, and the spirit, resulting in the power of God. Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word, and then shall your tongue be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God, unto the convincing of men. Next, worthiness. To have the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost, we must keep the commandments. I believe you know what evils offend the Spirit, and I will not mention them. A sentence from my patriarchal blessing has guided me. J. Keep your body free from the temptations and evils that present themselves. Live clean and fine, for our Heavenly Father's Spirit dwells in clean tabernacles. He does not dwell in unclean tabernacles. I found that this is supported by the Book of Mormon. The Spirit of the Lord did no more preserve them. Yea, it had withdrawn from them, because the Spirit of the Lord doth not dwell in unholy temples. Alertness, physically and spiritually. We live in a very busy world when many things clamor for our time and attention. It is by design that we encourage punctuality to meetings, especially sacrament meeting, to listen to the prelude music, prepare to have the Spirit and receive revelation. We fast, we pray, we ponder, we attend the temple, and we learn to be good listeners and observers. President Joseph F. Smith illustrates being physically and spiritually alert when he received the revelation we call the vision of the redemption of the dead found in Doctrine and Covenants 138. On the 3rd of October in the year 1918, I sat in my room pondering over the scriptures and reflecting upon the atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God. I visualized President Smith seated in a chair, perhaps a wooden chair, at a table with scriptures in front of him along with pen and paper. He was not lying on a couch or slouched in a chair. President David O. McKay emphasized the importance of being spiritually and physically alert with the story of the son of Bishop John Wells, a former member of the presiding bishopric, whose son was killed in a railroad accident. A few weeks after the funeral, the mother was residing at home, mourning his death, spiritually and physically alert. The son appeared to her and told her when he realized that he was in the spirit world, he first tried to reach his father but could not, and he said to her that his dad was too busy at the office. In many of our General Authority training meetings, presidents of the Church and apostles have reminded us to not be so busy doing the Lord's work that spiritual impressions cannot get through to us. I find it difficult to teach how to recognize direction, guidance, and spiritual promptings. Such experiences are personal and often tailored to the individual and to the conditions I just described. 
There are a few patterns, however, that I have experienced and I have learned from others. One is peace to your mind. The Lord taught a struggling Oliver Cowdery a powerful lesson when he reminded him, Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? I believe receiving peace to the mind is one of the most common ways to recognize direction from the Holy Ghost. Synonyms of peace are serenity, tranquility, harmony, stillness, while its opposites are confusion, anxiety, distraction, stirred up, and disharmony. We often use the words, I don't feel good about this, or I don't feel comfortable. Such feelings find their home in the next principle, mind and heart. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. I have learned from the First Presidency and from the Quorum of the Twelve, as well as through my own experiences, that revelations to the mind are often specific words, ideas, even sentences while revelations to the heart are general feelings associated with peace. Illustrations from the life of Enos are instructive. Verses 3 and 9 in his story describe a general feeling with these phrases, Joy sunk deep into my heart, and I began to feel. In verse 5 and 10 we find complete sentences, each introduced with, there came a voice into my mind saying, and the voice of the Lord came into mind again saying, followed by the sentence. Receiving feelings to the heart and thoughts in the mind are taught succinctly in these words to Hiram Smith, back in section 11. I will impart unto you of my spirit which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy, by this shall ye know all things whatsoever ye desire of me. Another one is to study it out in your minds. An oft-quoted scripture about recognizing revelation and promptings from the Holy Ghost is Doctrine and Covenants 9, verses 7 to 9. You must study it out in your mind, then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought. But Erdalen H. Oaks wisely taught that, quote, A person may have a strong desire to be led by the Spirit of the Lord, but unwisely extends that desire to the point of wanting to be led in all things. A desire to be led by the Lord is a strength but it needs to be accompanied by an understanding that our Heavenly Father leaves many decisions for our personal choices. We should study things out in our minds, using the reasoning powers our Creator has placed within us. Then we should pray for guidance and act upon it if we receive it. If we do not receive guidance, we should act upon our best judgment. Elder Oaks continues, Persons who persist in seeking revelatory guidance on subjects on which the Lord has not chosen to direct us, may concoct an answer out of their own fantasy or bias, or they may even receive an answer through the medium of false revelation. Close quote. And President Packer has wisely taught, 
you cannot force spiritual things. Such words as compel, coerce, constrain, pressure, demand do not describe our privileges with the Spirit. You can no more force the Spirit to respond than you can force a bean to sprout or an egg to hatch before its time. You can create a climate to foster growth, nourish, and protect, but you cannot force or compel. You must await the growth. Close quote. Burning of the bosom, the phrase from section 9. Concerning this burning of the bosom, as a return mission president, I was called to serve on a committee with other return mission presidents to find ways to improve proselyting. A suggestion was given to help missionaries experience and recognize the burning of the bosom, as just taught in Doctrine and Covenants 9, 7-9. The committee chairman, a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy and a former mission president, shared an experience he had had with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve who had toured his mission. During the tour, this wonderful mission president taught the importance of these three verses. Following the meeting and while driving to the next one, the member of the Twelve pointed out that in his years of experience he had found members who felt a failure in seeking revelation through a burning of the bosom, even after much fasting and prayer. They had not understood that the burning of the bosom is not related to caloric heat, but rather to an intensity of feeling, the peace to the mind and feelings to the heart mentioned earlier. Many may relate to the converts in the Book of Mormon who were baptized with fire and the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. In a revelation to Hiram Smith, we find four ways to recognize how the Spirit leads us. Put your trust in that Spirit which leadeth to, one, to do good, yea, two, to do justly, three, to walk humbly, and four, to judge righteously, and this is my Spirit. President Gordon B. Hinckley said, How do we know the things of the Spirit? How do we know if it is from God? By the fruits of it. If it leads to growth and development, if it leads to faith and testimony, if it leads to a better way of doing things, if it leads to godliness, then it is of God. If it tears us down, if it brings us into darkness, if it confuses us and worries us, if it leads to faithlessness, then it is of the devil. Another one. A subject may occupy the mind or weigh continually upon you. This truth from Joseph Smith's Epistle on Baptism for the Dead is another way that the Spirit speaks. Quote, that subject seems to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings the strongest. Close quote. Having impressions that persist until we act are real and sacred. While presiding over the Cali Columbia mission, I was studying scripture late one night after 10 p.m. A thought came into my mind to telephone an elder. I recently interviewed him and knew he had had a few challenges, and so I set the thought aside. The impression came again, and using the same reasoning, again I set it aside. It came a third time, and finally I recognized the impression for what it was, and I telephoned him. His companion was in bed and answered. 
I asked to speak to the elder that I was impressed to call. He said he was not in his bed. Set the phone down and find him, I said. He was found across the patio talking to a young woman who had moved in that day. The elders moved to a new apartment the next day. (laughs) To conclude, I cite a significant experience and wise counsel from President Wilfred Woodruff. In his travels, he reported that Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and other early Church leaders appeared to him. On one occasion, Brigham Young appeared to him and said—and Wilfred quotes it this way— When we arrived at our destination, I asked President Young if he would preach to us. He said, No, I have finished my testimony in the flesh. I shall not talk to the people anymore. But, said he, I have come to see you. I have come to watch over you and to see what the people are doing. Then, said he, I want you to teach the people, and I want you to follow this counsel yourself that they must labor and so live as to obtain the Holy Spirit. For without this you cannot build up the kingdom. Without the Spirit of God you are in danger of walking in the dark and danger of failing to accomplish your calling as apostles and elders in this Church and kingdom. I humbly pray that you will desire more earnestly to be worthy of the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost that you may recognize His promptings and grow in that ability to do so, that you may, as it says in section 101, be still and know. Be still and know the Father and the Son through the Holy Ghost, and in the process that you will express gratitude for Him and His guidance. For to express gratitude invites more of the Spirit. By the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost, I know that Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration, and that the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion. I know the Father and the Son live. They are real. I repeat, they are real. The Holy Ghost testifies of all truth. He sanctifies and He teaches. We are led today by living prophets, seers, and revelators true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. These fifteen men are guided by the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is the gift of knowledge through the Holy Ghost and secular learning. We've just heard from J.E. Jensen. After the break, we'll return with John D. Lamb for All Ye Need to Know. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the gift of knowledge through the Holy Ghost and secular learning. Next is John D. Lamb, Elliot A. Butler Professor of Chemistry and Distinguished Faculty Lecturer at the time of this address, titled, All Ye Need to Know. Let me begin by inviting you to step back and consider your current GPS coordinates. No, don't pull out your smartphone. Just use your smart cortex. Where are you? 
The correct answer among all the options A through E is that you happen to be at one of the most privileged places at one of the most privileged times in all of human history, a 21st century fully functional university, and not just any university, but a great university. Now, I know you've already spent 12 or more years of your life in school, and more to come, maybe many more if you plan to be a doctor like 150% of the students in my chemistry classes. (laughs) You're probably weary and may have asked yourselves, is this all really worth it? Is this the best way to spend a quarter to a third of my life expectancy? I think that's a fair question, and one that I'd like to spend a few minutes talking with you about today. Because my hope is to convince you, or perhaps to deepen your conviction if it is already there, that learning and knowledge have real intrinsic value, not just as the world sees it in the form of dollars and cents, but real eternal value. And so I've entitled my talk, All Ye Need to Know. You graduates of the Keats 101 class will recognize this as a snippet from his famous ode, wherein he assures us that beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Now, like all good poetry, these lines are open to multiple interpretations. And the first interpretation goes something like this. Well, that's enough. Don't bother learning anything else. This is the interpretation preferred by many Chem 105 students. And indeed, I know a lot of Chem 105 students who wish that John Keats rather than John Lamb were their chemistry instructor for this reason. But that's not the interpretation I wish to apply here today. Let's put the accent on the word all. And you see that it comes out, all ye need to know, which in the Canadian really means that you need to become a know-it-all. Now, I recognize that know-it-all is normally considered a pejorative term, but when you stop and think about it, would knowing it all in real fact be such a bad thing? To find an answer, let's talk a little about God's perspective on this important question. Of course, we typically query the mind of God through the pronouncements of his prophets. And the question at hand is this. What is the value of knowledge, and is it really worth all the effort of getting it? Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm faced with a difficult question, my first inclination is to see if Brother Joseph had something to say about it. It turns out there was plenty, much of it found in the scriptures and with which I am sure you are familiar, DNC 88, for example. But in addition, let's turn to the sayings of Joseph Smith as recorded in Joseph Fielding Smith's invaluable compilation, The Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph states, In knowledge there is power. God has more power than all other beings because he has greater knowledge, and hence, He knows how to subject all other beings to him. Did Joseph say God was all-powerful because he was in possession of more money, or was better looking, or had more influential friends, (laughs) or possessed the elder wand? No, rather because he has great knowledge. Now, you might be thinking, okay, When I'm resurrected as a celestial being, hopefully, poof, 
I'll know everything, and then I'll have all power too. But I'm afraid that's not the way it works. Notice what else Brother Joseph had to say. It is not wisdom that we should have all knowledge at once presented before us, but that we should have a little at a time. Then we can comprehend it. And elsewhere, whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. And finally, go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. Now, this is good doctrine and presents a pleasing outlook to the billions of years that lay before us. The excitement of discovery is in knowing that every discovery will open up new questions to be answered. Knowing all the answers would be like always being full and never being hungry. And I don't think that sounds fun at all. Forgive me if I get a little personal now at this point. I've been privileged to walk these halls nigh on 47 years now, student and professor. I've been mentored and nurtured intellectually and spiritually by great men and women whom I've admired and attempted to emulate. Over the years, students have often asked me why I chose science and a career in teaching, so I've tried to come up with a logical answer aside from the fact that it just felt good. Actually, part of the answer lies in the very roots of the word science itself. The word derives from the Latin scientia, meaning knowledge. And so literally, a scientist is a person who makes it his or her business to know stuff. Of course, in modern times, the word has taken on a focus that perhaps fits better, the more traditional title, natural philosopher, a label that I actually prefer for my profession. But to the point, being a scientist, getting to know stuff, and to understand the world a little better is a rewarding endeavor for me, indeed, an endeavor that yields a certain benefit well beyond the obvious professional ones enjoyed by those of us who carry the official title, scientist. Indeed, gaining knowledge is something everyone can do. And in this regard, in the broadest sense of the word, Everyone can be a scientist. And if we really believe those words from Joseph Smith, everyone should strive to be a scientist, a knower of things, a seeker of light and knowledge, like Abraham, our father. There is intrinsic value and eternal value in gaining knowledge. It is one way of drawing closer to God. It is one way of becoming more like him. Now, of course, one way of gaining knowledge is by study. On this point, I know I'm preaching to the choir, and I'm sure you students don't need to be reminded any more than you already are about that. Another way is by faith, and surely hearing the word of God with faith in him and his servants has edified the understanding of everyone here many times over. A third way that mankind as a whole enlarges in knowledge is by observation and reason an endeavor which we commonly call research, and which finds its most productive home in the university setting. That's an interesting word, isn't it? University. 
because it captures the scope of what we humans by nature seek to understand. The whole universe. Oh, and by the way, you cosmologists seeking proof of the multiverse, I appeal to you that one is just enough for now. Thank you. So at a university like ours, we seek knowledge about everything. And specifically, we seek to expand our knowledge and understanding about everything by observation and reason. So much has been learned. So much progress achieved in the last few centuries. But let's not get big heads over that fact. You see, it isn't entirely of our own doing. Where research is concerned, where the advancement of human knowledge is concerned, it turns out we have a powerful partner, one who seldom gets much, if any, credit. You never see his name on a peer-reviewed scientific publication. You never see his picture on the cover of Nature. He has never won the Nobel Prize in chemistry or physics or anything. He is Jesus Christ. And what, you may ask, along with Richard Dawkins, is his contribution to the advancement of science, of knowledge, of the universe, at this or at every university or research laboratory? I invite an answer from Brigham Young. Every discovery in science and art that is really true and useful to mankind has been given by direct revelation from God, though but few acknowledge it. It has been given with a view to prepare the way for the ultimate triumph of truth and the redemption of the earth from the power of sin and Satan. Now, I know this is supposed to be a forum assembly, not a devotional. But you see, where knowledge is concerned, on the highest level at least, we don't make a distinction between sacred knowledge and secular knowledge, do we? And why is that? Because God does not make this distinction himself. All truth, all ye need to know, remember, is circumscribed into one whole. In other words, it fits together seamlessly. And the knowledge that has poured out upon the Latter-day Saints and clearly on the whole world in the latter days has just one source. Further, it has just one scope to bring man closer to living in the kind of world God lives in, to live the kind of life God lives. Now, it's interesting to me that LDS doctrine about the relationship between God and mankind, between the nature of God and mankind's capacity for knowledge, differs so markedly from that of traditional Christianity. You see, we don't believe in mysteries in the traditional philosophical sense of the word. That is, mysteries being not just things that we don't understand, but that we cannot ever understand because the answer is inherently incomprehensible to humans, locked away in the unknowable mind of God. On the contrary, we have faith because Joseph had faith that reasonable, comprehensible answers exist for every question just waiting for God to reveal them and waiting for our capacity to rise to the occasion. As Eliza Snow pointed out, and as we sing in O oh My Father, truth is reason. The LDS perspective is that truth is reasonable. Nature is reasonable. God is reasonable. 
We certainly don't have all the answers now, but we look forward to getting them one day, line upon line, precept upon precept. In a way, Joseph Smith has done for what we call the sacred what Newton did for the secular. Just as Newton showed that the laws that governed the earth and the heavens were not different as had been thought up to that point, so Joseph brought the religious heaven and earth into a degree of harmony. In that, physical bodies, ours, the earth, and so on, once thought by many to be antithetical to heaven, are actually part of a long-term plan to build for the eternities. These, in fact, to be maintained into the eternities, albeit in a more exalted form. Thus, in Latter-day Saint philosophy, the temporal study of the material world is given a degree of sanctity and eternal value which it otherwise does not possess. Of course, given the value of knowledge in bringing men and women closer to God, is it any wonder that over the ages Satan has done everything in his power to impede its progress? Short periods of enlightenment have come and gone, only to be replaced by droughts of darkness. The library at Alexandria burned, the schools of the Roman Empire destroyed, the works of Beethoven and Goethe replaced by Nazi barbarism. Furthermore, holding back knowledge has been a means of enslavement of men and women from time immemorial. Among many examples across many cultures, consider these. Ancient priests in Egypt subjugating peasants by their knowledge of heavenly motions in the Nile flood to engender awe and obedience. Medieval priests making it a capital crime to read or translate the Bible in the vernacular. Taliban goons shooting little girls for going to school. It is amazing to me that the latter event could happen in this day and age. But I think it illustrates how desperate the forces of evil are to prevent knowledge from spreading over the earth as the Lord has intended. As Latter-day Saints, we need to stand as strong opponents of these evil forces and as standards of enlightened learning. Learning is an integral part of building Zion and a central feature of our mission. That is why one of the first things Joseph did in Kirtland was to establish a school of the elders and in Nauvoo a university. That is why BYU exists and you and I are here. It is more than preparing for a profession, it's preparing for the millennial reign of Christ. It is preparing for eternity. Anyone who watches the news knows that the forces of darkness and ignorance are alive and prospering in the world even today. But there is a flood of light and knowledge that is pushing back the darkness as knowledge becomes ever more readily available through the technologies brought about by advances in human understanding. The freedoms and prosperity we enjoy in the West are fragile flowers at an oasis in the midst of a vast historical wasteland of human ignorance and suffering. That flower could easily wither if we don't cherish and nurture it in our own lives and the lives of our children and grandchildren. As spoken by the spirit of Christmas past, ignorance and want spell the doom of civilization, 
and we must deter them at every turn. A broad education for every individual and the advancement of knowledge, as admonished by the Lord in DNC 88, underpin the freedoms and the prosperity that we enjoy. Now let me pause here for a bit of clarification. Lest I be misunderstood, I want to explain that in speaking of the value of knowledge, I mean more than familiarity with facts, but not exclusively. It is true that in the 21st century we are faced with an interesting and to some degree unprecedented challenge when it comes to deciding what to store in our heads. Today, facts are easily stored and retrieved from our exo-brains, namely our computers, much more easily than was true using books in the pre-digital world. For example, I can remember spending many grueling hours in the library researching a topic for a term paper to find information that today I could find on the Internet in seconds. So it could be claimed that in this day, the other and for the moment uniquely human intellectual talent for understanding and wisdom is the most important, if not the only, aspect of knowledge that we need to nurture in ourselves. After all, didn't the Lord admonish, with all thy getting, get understanding? Indeed, one might be tempted to go to the extreme of claiming that in the 21st century, knowledge of facts has become altogether outdated. After all, you can always look it up in Wikipedia, right? But let's ask ourselves, can understanding be achieved without learning facts? Along these lines, Hugh Nibley makes an important point about the interesting interplay between facts and understanding. In his essay, Zeal Without Knowledge, he states, If we try to evade the responsibility of directing our minds to the highest possible object, if we try to settle for a milder program at lower stakes and safer risks, we are immediately slapped and buffeted by a power that will not let us rest. We must think, but about what? The substance of thought is knowledge. If the mind is denied functioning to capacity, it will take terrible revenge, in particular, It will invent knowledge if it has to. What he's saying, in essence, is that our minds demand knowledge. It is in our nature. And it is important that we fill the mind with true knowledge or it will absorb the false or the imaginary. Beyond this, I have to say that it is dash difficult to think intelligently about something of which you know nothing. I've tried that and it doesn't work. I've heard radio commentators try it and to disastrous effect inventing fallacious knowledge right and left, leading to even more fallacious conclusions. If we are to direct our minds to the highest possible object, we do well to fill our minds with true knowledge about that object and use the discernment that is uniquely human to come to understand the world in ways that computers just can't achieve. Furthermore, without making the effort to check our facts, it will be easy for us to be caught up in a world which has lost the distinction between medicine and fruit juice, between music and noise, between science and fraud. We have a lot to do in a short time to build up Zion. God has given us a very fertile field in which to cultivate our knowledge in support of that effort. Indeed, we live in a golden age of learning. And yet, I worry that many of us are prone to squander this precious gift. My encouragement to you is this. 
Don't let opportunities to engage in deep and meaningful learning pass by you unnoticed. Open your eyes to light and eliminate the distractions from your life. There are so many inviting but hollow distractions around us these days. Pop culture is well-named. It has all the nutritional value of soda pop or cotton candy, all empty calories and air. Now, I like a little soda pop or cotton candy now and then. It's fun. But a constant diet, morning, noon, and night, would ruin my health, and a constant diet of nothing but pop culture will ruin the health of the soul. The problem is that it can be addictive. In fact, if it is distracting you from what is important in life, I invite you to be an iconoclast of pop culture distractions. Smash those game platforms, figuratively, I mean, okay? Apply the mute button unmercifully to MTV. Tell those purveyors of the latest fashions to take a hike. Or at least if you can't put these things away altogether, put them in their place on a far back burner. Instead, why not use the precious little time you have on Earth while your brain still functions to drink deeply from the Pyrean spring and apply that knowledge you've gained to good ends with all your might? Oh, and uh, by the way, to help you understand what I mean when I say to do this while your brain still functions, let me make you aware of the kinds of dangers that lurk about you with a little story from my younger days. When I was about 25, a fellow player threw a heavy wooden racquetball racket with all his might into my head and knocked me unconscious. I don't think it was on purpose. I don't think I was winning at the time. <laughs> I had to have 13 stitches in my head, and I'm sure my IQ dropped 10 points that day. So take a lesson from me. Take every advantage of every opportunity to learn while you can. You never know what a friend might do. <laughs> we human beings have an inherent need, indeed craving, to learn. We inherited that from our heavenly parents. We're inveterate information gatherers. Now, I don't like that word information so much. It sounds rather sterile. But the word does have one redeeming value. It reminds us that we are informed by the information we invite into our heads. Will that be information junk food? Or will we ingest the best that the universe has to offer? I say let's aim for the latter. Our destiny is to be better than what this world alone has to offer. Don't let Lady Gaga or ESPN or Wall Street rob you of that. Your destiny is to build Zion. You were sent here to change the world. You are the last great hope of the world. There is a shining city on a hill that Joseph Smith pointed our minds to. We need to seek it out. Let's make it the focus of our waking moments. Joseph knew that the only way for light to overcome darkness, for truth to overcome error, was for the children of light to grow in knowledge and apply that knowledge with diligence. That's why he was so keen on education and why we should be also. He had a vision that we could be better than the beasts and live not for today, but for eternity. Let me just ask you a question. Can you imagine living forever? What are you going to do? Get up in the morning and watch the 10 millionth Super Bowl on TV? Eat your 457 billionth 
Pepperoni pizza? Really? What are you going to do for all those billions of years? Whatever it is, it will be an extrapolation of what you spend your time doing now. Now is the time to lay the foundation for eternity. We've just got to divest ourselves of the idea that eternity is something we face after we die. Eternity isn't tomorrow. It's now. There are so many things we should be doing to lay the foundation for a happy and productive eternity. Learning, of course, is just one of them, but certainly not the least. It just happens to be the one I'm focusing on here. Let me encourage you to be not only diligent, but to be eclectic in your learning. There are wonderful things to learn in every discipline, and answers to many interesting questions are found there. Here are just a few. Let's start with mathematics. No groaning, please. Here we find the language of creation. Pythagoras was right, as we are now learning. Reality really is based on numbers. Economics. Here we learn why they are rich and we are poor. <laughs> Literature. Here we can live a thousand lives in a single lifetime. We can see the world through the eyes of Job, Falstaff, Horace Rumpole, and Jack Ryan. Physics. Here we come to know that the world is weirder than we could possibly imagine. <laughs> Music. Here we can learn to resonate with the heartbeats of others. And finally, chemistry. Ah, the ultimate in human intellectual achievement. <laughs> Which unveils the tiny world that underpins all we see around us. Here's another example, this time from astronomy. What if I had eyes like the Hubble telescope and could see far into the distance and in many wavelengths of light? I could look over there and see the great storm on Jupiter in retinal clarity, or over there and see through the clouds of Orion Nebula to witness a star being born, or over there and see a quasar as an enormous black hole devours nearby stars in a storm of superhot debris. Now, how could I even be aware that such wonders exist, let alone envision them, if I hadn't sought out and been blessed with knowledge? One last point. Are we ever going to run out of things to learn? The longer I live, the more I doubt it. You see, at the beginning of the 20th century, some in the scientific community claimed that all that was important to know had now been discovered and that the only work left to do was to tie up a few loose ends. Of course, that was before Einstein and others upset the apple cart in multiple ways. And look how our understanding has changed since then. Fast forward even further into the 21st century and another heart stopper. Here we thought we were making such great progress in understanding the natural world, only to discover that all this time we've been studying only about 5% of the matter and energy in the universe. The rest was invisible to us. Why? Because we are creatures of electromagnetism, and the rest of the matter and energy in the universe pretty much just ignores those rules. If we keep going on like this, we'll soon find that the more we know, the closer we approach to knowing relatively nothing at all. But is that discouraging? No. 
not discouraging at all. In fact, it opens up the wonderful prospect of an eternity of never running out of new things to learn about. Well, I hope that in some small way here today, I've managed to strengthen your commitment to learning. And surely, gaining knowledge and understanding is a godly endeavor. It can be hard work, but it can also be thrilling. It can be exciting, and it can be intoxicating. You've heard of a runner's high? Well, sometimes I feel like I'm experiencing a learner's high. I hope you've experienced this, too. I hope you will continue experiencing it here at BYU throughout your lives and on into an endless eternity. God bless you all, and thank you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was The Gift of Knowledge Through the Holy Ghost and Secular Learning with thoughts from J.E. Jensen and John D. Lamb. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.